Hello and welcome to the No Longer Be Children podcast. I'm your host, Josiah Meyer, and we are in pursuit of a mature and stable Christian worldview. And today we have a special guest, Dr. Florin Kurta, who will help us understand a bit more about an important subject we have been studying recently, namely Marxism. And for those who are just joining the podcast at this juncture, i just like to highlight that I have a five-part series on Marxism already on the podcast, and you can find the podcast in iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and all the other wonderful places that podcasts are found. Dr. Florin Kurda, I'm very excited to have with us uh, to discuss this issue uh, because he has not only academic knowledge of the subject, but actually living and real-life experience, uh, having lived it and grown up in it, as he's going to share with us. So I'd like to tell you a little bit about his academic credentials, and then we'll get straight into the interview. Dr. Florin Kurda received both his MA and PhD in history from Western Michigan University in 1995 and 1998, respectively. He earned his BA in history and philosophy from the University of Bucharest in 1988, and his MA in medieval studies from Cornell University's University in 1999. Dr. Kurda is professor of history at the University of Florida. Along with many other publications, Dr. Kurda is the author of The Making of the Slavs, History and Archaeology of the Lower Danube Region, circa 500 to 700 AD, which offers new perspectives on the origins of the Slavic ethnicity in southeastern Europe. In January 2003, this work earned him the Hubert Baxter Adams Prize of the American Historical Association. Dr. Kurter. I'm very glad to have you with me. And um, you're a perfect person to talk about Marxism with because this isn't just something you've, you've researched intellectually. You've actually lived it, haven't you? Mm-hmm. you want to I talk do. a little bit about your experience with Marxism? Um, you mean theoretically or practically? <laughs> because it's a major practically. Difference. How how did it affect your life growing up? Right. Or people that you care about? Yeah. So let let me start by uh, saying that um, uh, within a under under a communist regime like uh, that uh, under which I was born and raised, um, you know, from 1965 to 1989. Um, there is no way to escape Marxism in terms of education. That is to say, it is it it, 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 it imbues every single aspect of the education at all levels, um, and it takes many facets. One of which is that the disciplines that would have something to do with society, uh, either um, history or, believe it or not, even geography, uh, will have to actually um, be structured. The the uh, teaching matter will have to be presented um, in a manner that is consistent with Marxism. Um, at least three tenets here are fundamental to understand how how my education from early on was um, you know influenced I, sh- I could go as far as to say shaped by um, this mandatory marxist um, uh, you know tenet uh, first of all is the idea that um, society changes not because some 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 somebody you know a group of people or an individual ones but because there are um, laws behind the working of society that uh, are behind people's backs so it's almost like there's there's nothing you can do eventually the entire world will go to socialism okay uh, this is something about uh, about uh, this that actually um, uh, has a uh, you know a, 
impossible way to get out of history, let's put it this way. Second, the idea that um, everything could be explained in um, ultimately, so the, uh, at the bottom of every issue is actually um, economic in- inequality. So there's a, there's a, there is a very early and very strong shift towards um, a, um, an emphasis on economic issues as opposed to anything that will have to do with what Marxists would call superstructure. Uh, ideas, religion, and the like. And third, um, there is a, um, almost in contradiction to the first tenet that I mentioned to you earlier, is the idea that, um, um, you know, because humanity is too large, uh, there is a group of revolutionaries, quote-unquote, um, usually headed by a head of state, in the case of Romania, Nicolae Ceausescu, who know better than anybody else what the society as a whole needs to do, and especially at an individual level, what um, every person is, needs to do. Uh, the, the practical consequence of this last uh, third tenet is that at any um, on any paper and any exam that you are uh, taking uh, in school, you are supposed to quote from uh, the great leader's words, uh, which themselves are supposed to be in um, um, harmony with the Marxist theory, but uh, every now and then uh, will have a bit of voluntarism, which as I hope we're going to have the opportunity to discuss later. Marxism, at least as initially devised by Marx, did not have. Mm. This is interesting. This is two things I've noticed already in what you're talking about. Um, I had always seen Marxism as a way to push humanity in a certain direction, but you're telling me that Marxism from the inside, it, what they tell you is that humanity is already going in this direction, and we're just Correct. going to kind of get ahead of the curve. We're going to be there first, but if we sat back yeah. and, did, and did nothing, we would end up in utopia anyways. Yeah, well, I mean, it was definitely not utopia. I mean, uh, that, that explains why so few people inside the communist regime in 1989, including myself, uh, were absolutely shocked at what was going on. I, I kid you not, I, I thought that this is it, that this will, end, will never end. Mm. Um, not, not that uh, we didn't have hopes, not that, I mean, but hopes would have been to actually escape on the other side. Mm. Uh, nobody would have thought that the regime would actually collapse. Nobody. Um, so, I mean, that, there, is a, there, is a, there is a very strong influence of this um, education um, infused by Marxism on people's expectations of what history has for them. There's a certain pessimism, there's a certain fatalism, uh, which I would say is probably typical for East Central Europe, uh, historically speaking, even before the advent of communism. But definitely the communist regimes um, accentuated that. Yeah, it's interesting. And, and, and if I may, if I may, that also explains why um, despite communism and despite the, the absolute, um, uh, um, you know, harsh treatment of religion, um, Catholicism in Poland or Orthodoxy in uh, Romania, Bulgaria and Russia, um, actually, Christianity is very vibrant in all those mm. countries that I mentioned to you. Yeah, interesting. And then it would likely be Orthodox Christianity mostly in those countries. Well, I mean, uh, the um, the reality is that, I mean, many people do not know this. I mean, there was, um, was a very complicated um, landscape, politically speaking, um, 
first let me let me let me give you a sense of how complicated in religious terms. Uh, Transylvania, which is the central western part of Romania, um, had actually entered the Romanian kingdom only in 1918, so you know a little bit more than 100 years ago, um, having been part of Hungary before and Austria-Hungary after that. Um, actually had a uh, substantial number of people, we're talking Romanians, right? First of all, uh, Transylvania has three ethnic groups there, Germans, uh, Hungarians, and Romanians. Mm -hmm. And Germans are Lutheran, the Hungarians are Calvinists. Um, So in the Romanian group, which is the largest population, um, a split uh, was created uh, beginning with the 18th century whereby um, uh, a substantial group of uh, formerly Orthodox um, joined or accepted the union with the uh, Church of Rome, uh, thus creating what is known in Canada, in your country, as Uniates. Um, You have very large community of um, Greek Catholics or Byzantine Catholics or Uniates in Saskatchewan, but uh, most of them are of Ukrainian origin. Uh, there was a substantial number of uh, Uniates of Romanian origin in Transylvania as well. My family was um, among them. Um, there was, therefore, a um, loyalty, if I may put it this way, um, that the Uniates had towards the head of the Catholic Church, the Pope, who in 1947, when the Communists took over, um, had uh, had the uh, found himself the Pope that is on the other side of the Iron Curtain. So the communists could not tolerate a church uh, members of which were loyal to someone who was on the other side. So uh, the communist regime actually um, hunted people down. Uh, I had two uncles who died in the mountains being shot by the communists for refusing to join the mother church, quote unquote. The communist regime forced them to rejoin, if I may put it this way, the Orthodox Church. Um, And in exchange for that, uh, the communist regime uh, abolished the uh, Greek Catholic Church. The bishops of the Greek Catholic Church died in the Gulag. Um, The Greek Catholics uh, under uh, this viewed themselves as the early Christians under um, uh, persecutions. Uh, They really thought of themselves as the catacomb church. Uh, but at the same time, the uh, communist regime did not confiscate the properties of the Greek um, the Catholic Church, but passed them on to the Orthodox Church. Forward in time, 1989, collapse of the communist regime, um, the Greek Catholic Church reemerges as a, you know, as a phoenix out of the ashes. Um, you might think uh, that there would be, uh, since we're talking about Romanians on one side and Rom- Romanians on the other, uh, you might think there would be a... a um, a, uh, an agreement for the Orthodox Church to actually give some of the properties back. Uh, no such thing. Um, there was enormous tension in Transylvania in the post-communist years, in the 90s. Um, I don't know if you knew, but um, uh, John Paul II, the first visit uh, that he made to a formerly communist country was in Romania. And he was not allowed to go to, Trans- to Transylvania, precisely because of this. So it's it's very complicated in terms of mm-hmm. um, you know how you align yourself with those with those uh, uh, things. I grew up in a family in which my grandmother told me you are first Greek Catholic, you are second Romanian, and you are third human being. And I spent mm-hmm. most of my life reversing the order. Can you give me those three uh, again? So if you're first Greek Catholic, as I mentioned, my my the the family on my father's side were from Transylvania, and uh, they were all Greek. 
Catholics. So she said, my grandmother, uh, your first Greek Catholic, your second Romanian, and your third human being. And I think I did right by spending the rest of my life after I heard this from her, uh, doing the opposite. First human being, second Romanian, and actually I'm not Greek Catholic anymore. I'm married Orthodox, okay. and I go to an Orthodox church. I'm sure there was a story there. And just to clarify, human being meaning as a Christian made in the image of God. Yeah, it means that it means that uh, I mean, uh, this just give you a sense of what I'm talking about. Uh, after being after marrying my wife, uh, uh, part of my family refused to open their their doors to us yeah. because I married Orthodox. I mean, the, the 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 tensions. I mean, when it's very hard, I have hard time in America explaining to to people all those things because people they, they don't have the experience of this. Mm-hmm. We live in a country in which you can actually, you know. You know, you can believe in whatever you want. Mm-hmm. And that's no um, major obstacle towards actually establishing friendships and neighborhoods and whatnot. Not there. Yeah, there's... Um, I, I think mean, that's something imagine, that... Go ahead. Yeah, go ahead, please. Well, this is, this is what I want to get around to, is that we have a hard time in our culture understanding Marxism and what it's like, because for one thing... American culture and European culture are very different. I would characterize American culture as being generally optimistic, and you've said European culture is generally pessimistic. Also, freedom is kind of anchored in in our mythology and in our story as as North Americans, uh, whereas Marxism is, again, you mentioned uh, there's no voluntarism, there's no freedom. Yeah. Uh, and then we don't have these long histories of you know, the Greek Orthodox or even the, the Slavs and the individual. Of religious religions. conflict, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 True. Some of the big differences um, but, there. But just to give you a sense of what we're talking about here, I mean, the relationship between Marxism, I mean, most people think of Marxism as, I mean, they equate that word with atheism. And that's, mm-hmm. you know, theoretically correct. Um, in practice, however, I mean, come to think of it, when Hitler invaded Soviet Russia, uh, you know, there was... The, the, the end of you know 20 years of enormous damage done to Soviet society. Among the the, the first and foremost most important victims of that were priests. Mm. Stalinism coincides with an, with an enormous persecution of the of the believers. Uh, yet when Hitler came, and uh, there was no mobilizing idea around which uh, Stalin could actually. Uh, gathered the entire society to establish a, a resistance. He got all the priests out of the gulag. Why? Because <laughs> people believe more in God than anything else. <laughs> Even mm-hmm. Stalin realized that. Mm-hmm. I mean, there is there is a very interesting uh, angle here, and this actually uh, you ask uh, at the at the at the beginning of our discussion here what was uh, my life experience. Mm-hmm. That's exactly what happened. Um, theoretically speaking. Um, uh, you are free in Romania to go to the church. Uh, you better not show up in the church uh, so that others will see you because neighbors, even um, you know, members of the family, relatives could uh, denounce you to the secret police of going to the church there. But you know, th- that actually encourages double life. It's one persona in the public, another one at, uh, at home. Um, th- that also explains why, for example, before coming to the United States in 1993, in Romania, I would not go to the church very often, despite my uh, the education that my grandmother on my father's side instilled in me, 
um, take me to the church and whatnot. So I just would go and Easter, Christmas, and that's about it. It is here in the United States that I rediscovered Orthodoxy. Hmm. And the freedom to actually practice it uh, in forms and shapes that are not quite common anymore in the old country. Interesting. So this has been noted before that when people, like immigrants, often they have a richer expression of their, their heritage and their faith sometimes in a new country than they did in, in the previous country. Yeah. So you're saying that's kind of what you experienced with um Yeah, with except that I didn't except I didn't go to a Romanian Orthodox church. There is one nearby in Jacksonville, but that's about an hour and fifteen minutes driving. I'm not gonna get up in the morning at five o'clock to get there. I have a Greek Orthodox church next to me here, English people, as I said, of all backgrounds. Um I have Ethiopian friends, I have Georgian friends, I have Russian friends. I mean it's it's a family. And that's not a concept that is should I say, um, feasible in the old country. Um, you know, division in society was something that the communists were very good at uh, creating. Mm-hmm. Even within the same ethnic group, as I mentioned, Romanians were Orthodox, uh, hated the Romanians who were Greek Catholic. Um, and vice versa, of course. Um, so anything... Go ahead. Go ahead, please. That's something that I noted in my theory so far on Marxism is that um, it is essentially divisive because it it's part of the ideology. This this um, uh, the dialectic of history is about creating divisions and the two divisions having you know the um, thesis antithesis and synthesis that you know without division uh, there can't be progress. I don't know if the, if if it's it's a deliberately divisive. Um, in other words. Its, its goal is actually to um, level, to create a single uniform mass of people. Mm. And that is contrary to the idea that it divides. But, but before you get there to that uh, unique uh, single color, uh, absolutely obedient mass, you have to break the old habits or the mm. old privileges, all the old modes of thinking. And in order to do so, you have to destroy from inside out uh, what was or is perceived as dangerous. Um, just to give you a sense of what I'm talking about here, I talked a lot with my grandfather, so my father's father, um, about how it was between the Orthodox and the Greek Catholics in, Trans- in Transylvania before 1947. There was no animosity. There was no, in other words, once freedom reigns, People find ways to coexist. I know it's a, it's a it's a it's a silly uh, bumper sticker that I see very often here in Florida. Coexist with, you know, the word written with all the religious symbols, right? It's silly, but there is something true to that. Except that when you put it on a bumper sticker, it sounds exactly like what happened in Romania. There, you order people to coexist. Yeah, you know, there's a there's a superior. Um, uh, I, I, I dare I say authority that tells you that it's better to coexist than not. And that's exactly what should not happen. Um, historically speaking, in fact, um, it's, it's a very interesting thing here. Um, Marxism, Marx himself, um, you know, maintains that no ideas, no ideologies, no philosophies are good or bad until tested by history. Right. Marx actually put it, practices what actually gives uh, an ideological system 
validity, right? Well, if that's true, <laughs> why are we talking about Marxism right now? There is absolutely no reason to, for that system to still be in use. 27 countries, I think I'm not wrong on the number, tried it. Different continents, different times. All failed. A good Marxist statement as a conclusion will be, well, throw Marxism to the garbage bin. And yet it continues to be very popular and continues to yes. be applied as, as a dominant po political theory. Why do you think that is? Maybe I can transition here into this question. Right. <laughs> we got to the... Yeah. Why, um, let me set it up by saying Marxism is incredibly popular among students, among historians, among um, political writers, and increasingly we're seeing it, it come into American and Canadian politics as right. a very interesting, viable theory. So why is that? Considering now, the fact that it seems very clear from history that it doesn't work. Well, uh, the easiest answer to that would be lack of education. And it's not that it's not true, but I don't think it's only that. First of all, Marxism, as, as I explained to you, actually a lot of the people that um, claim to be Marxist nowadays or are labeled by others to be Marxist never read Marx, or very few did, right? So there is a, there's, a, there's a very large distance between what they say they do and what they really do. Um, maybe we're going to get to uh, discuss a little bit uh, the ideology of Quebec Solidaire. And I will, I will prove to you, if necessary, that actually that party claiming to be socialist does things that Marx would not have considered. So that's besides the point. You ask me why is Marxism popular. I think that most people that actually uh, would subscribe to Marxism, uh, whether they read Marx or not, are in fact looking for some loosely understood notion of social justice. It's a pretty popular thing to do. Come on, I mean, we're not going to actually be bad and harsh to others. We want everybody to be nice. It's actually, um, may, I, may I say, a, a fundamental dimension of the uh, social being that every one of us is, and living to, with others. So um, it translates into that desire to improve the world, to make it better for others. Now here comes something that I think is fundamental for our discussion that started with ideology and with Marx. Indeed, you're right uh, to point out if, if anyone would study the history of the last, what, 50 years or so of the world, we'll see that, in fact, Marxism is a complete failure. Yet after 1989, the left in the entire world, not just in America or Canada or the West, was intellectually important. There is no other system of ideas to critically approach the most recent developments of the, or the post-1989 developments in the, in the world. I guess what I'm trying to say is that lacking any other theoretical framework, the left actually does nothing but rehashing old recipes. As I look more at this and knowing a little bit about, um, you know, I've done a lot of, of work, I've done some study on uh, the ancient Greeks, and that's a, a period of time that I really enjoy. And right. as I was looking at this, I was feeling like, okay, I, I'm more conservative leaning myself, but I understand I don't want to live under a theocracy. I think that's been tried. It right. doesn't work. But I right. also don't want to live under Marxism. Is there right. a third way? And suddenly <laughs> I had this thought, well, hold on a second. That's, 
That's as old as Athens, Greece. This is, right. you know, at, this is democracy. This is what has sometimes been called, well, it was rediscovered and called modernism, sometimes called liberalism or, or you know, the Democratic Party in the United States. It seems to me that these ideas of, you know, more, let's figure out a humanistic way to solve our problems. Let's look to the state. Let's have a bigger government. Um, these are not Marxist ideas. These, are, these go all the way back to Athens, Greece. Correct. But somehow Marxism has kind of taken over that to where we feel as yep. though either we have vote Donald Trump or we vote Bernie Sanders. And somewhere in between, you know, if I can use American politics, but somewhere in between, I feel like there needs to be this, this third voice, which didn't used to be the third voice. I think it, it used to be a dialogue between religion and, and Athens, you know, usually Christianity, but sometimes, you know, further east, it was between Islam and Athens. But somehow religion and, and this liberal idea need to hash it out and create a, a society. And I think that we've lost that. We've forgotten about the voice of Athens, and that's what is missing. Do you, do you resonate with that? Um, first, let me say that um, I think that um, we're living in an era of uh, intellectual morass. Mm. I say the phenomenon that you described, that uh, things that were like 50 years ago uh, distinct from a uh, purely um, uh, intellectual point of view are now combined precisely because people realize that, say, for example, in theories, in social theories that will address uh, problems of um, uh, inequality, or in theories that will address problems of democracy in a political sense of the word, right? There are holes. There are holes that were created by historical experience. That is, things happen that show that, as initially designed, those systems do not work. So, um, in, a, in a very interesting way, um, instead of actually creating something new, most uh, intellectuals nowadays, and I'm, I'm, I have to say historians were, you know, quite participating in this, in this uh, 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 sad uh, game, um, decided that it's probably better to have something else, namely a combination of things. Take a little bit from a to to totalitarianism, especially the idea of controlling and imposing uh, certain kinds of behavior, be that um, no smoking. I mean, one thing that I tell to my liberal friends is that uh, Hitler was both vegetarian and an, an, an archenemy of uh, smoking. Um, if, you, if, you, if you can wrap your mind around what that means, you'll understand my point. Um, that, that, in fact, we don't have a solution, one, not multiple, for the reality ar around us is, I think, a testimony to the fact that the world got is so complicated that politicians, first and foremost, but intellectual second, don't have answers. And they don't have answers because they gave up the idea of actually looking at the world as uh, something that is uh, um, complex. Mm. Take, for example, the, uh, the discussion about climate change. Right? Uh, I'm not going to get into the details of the science and whatnot, but I will say, I mean, to me, it's quite clear that what is, what is in fact at stake here is an attempt to control rather than to solve. In other words, before we know for sure that, um, say, for example, um, uh, CO2 emissions from cars in the United States or in Canada create um, such problems, um, there, is, there is no historical perspective on this. Uh, there is an island called Greenland, which was called so by the Vikings, who settled there around the year 1000. 
Well, I mean, that means that they could leave there and have, we have sources clearly uh, pointing out to the fact that uh, they could cultivate crops, they could uh, raise uh, cattle. Uh, apparently, there was no um, uh, ice uh, on the southern coast of Greenland at that time, nor were CO2 emissions at that time. Um, instead of actually addressing this, you, just, you, you don't need a PhD to actually figure this much out. Um, there is a desire to impose a behavior on everybody uh, with consequences in the economic, social, and political field. Now, is that Marxism? I don't know. I'm not, not going to defend Marxism here. Obviously not. I lived it. I know it doesn't work in so-and-so. But what I'm trying to say is that this, to me, has a lot more to do with the inability, with the despair that the left now has, that it has no intellectual instrument to figure out what to do. So when, when you don't know what to do, you bully. Mm. Intellectually what speaking, do. what we witness right now, it's an intellectual bullying. That's what it is. Mm. And I would have I, said, I, I, yeah, go ahead, please. I would have, I've said previously as well, and I would link this, you know, my domain is a bit more philosophy and religion, but when you remove absolute right and wrong, you lose, lose absolute morality, and the only thing left is that might makes right. So with those, well, do you see the, that uh, the, Yeah, see, the, the, uh, uh, the standard position that the left takes here is that everything that has produced so far in terms of religion and philosophy is outdated. So, uh, we, with the exception of Marxism, of course. <laughs> uh, I mean, yeah, it's a, it's a very interesting argument um, to, if, if you want to try that, to actually ask people, okay, so you think it's something uh, that uh, is, is about to um, 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 change our views. Do you consider the uh, issue of, um, of religion as being a, a possible alternative to the ways of um, organizing society? Um, that lately um, failed, and most of them will say no. Not, I mean, to say uh, uh, theocracy is an extreme case. Um, I don't think that anybody wants to live in a theocracy, as you put it this way. But um, to argue that uh, religion cannot play any role in history in mobilizing the people, I'll give you the example of Stalin, or in um, creating a certain mindset that will be, if you want, more conducive towards uh, less selfish attitudes, um, uh, attitudes that would encourage cooperation between people. It's a gross mistake. I mean, as I mentioned earlier, even Stalin understood the, uh, the potential of Christianity to actually do things that no ideology, secular or not, could do. Um, and, I mean, theoreticians in the 70s and 80s would have told you, you, know, you, can, you can actually do research on this, and see that everybody thought that religion as a system of beliefs uh, worthy studying will die out by the end of the 20th century. Well, welcome to the 21st. I don't think there is any m more important political issue in the world nowadays than religion. Mm -hmm. And the irony of, you know, we want to find some way of coexisting, as you mentioned before, and we need some sort right. of secular state to to manage that, but it seems as though we need to have this tension between religion and the state, because if you go completely direction of, let's just have a humanist state based on the human, right. well, what is a human without God? Well, it's, it's I, I animal, agree with you, right? Amen. Yeah. So 
Well, we want complete freedom. Well, what is freedom without God? If there's no God, there is no absolute personhood. Atheists, most atheists would say that there is no free will even, if you talk about philosophical right. atheists. Well, that, that's, that's, the pre- that's, that's the premise upon Marx's multi-capon. Say, I told you, it's mechanism working behind you. Yeah. Uh, that uh, you know, are forces of history that you cannot control. So the irony here is that for a, a good, I mean, if I was in, a good atheist humanist would want some religion, even if they didn't believe it. There is a need for religion to anchor um, liberal society, it seems to me, because you need some anchor points for morality, for personhood, for free well, will, and, you, you, and for humanism. You do, know, you do know that any correct approach to a problem is a historicist uh, approach. That is to say, in order to understand that problem, you have to take an approach that will explain how it came about, how it came into being. All right? So if you're atheist and if you are actually going to discuss moral values, the first question that I would have is that where do those moral values come from? Mm. Why, is it bad not, why is it bad to kill, for example? Why is that something to condemn? And there will be no answer in, the, in, a, in a system of discussion, of debate, in which God is not present. There will be no answer to that. Mm. So... In other words, um, I, 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 uh, I crack a joke every now and then with my students about this, you know, about this um, political correctness, which can go on the surface, as my following example will show. But what I'm trying to explain to you here is that the political correctness, which started with the Enlightenment, to take God out of the equation here, got us into the mess in which we are right now. Um, my example for the sense was the following. It seems that is um, more fashionable nowadays with editors of journals and books and whatnot, uh, with people in the academe, to use, instead of BC and AD for years, to use CE and BCE, or BCE and CE respectively. And I say, okay, I mean, I understand you don't want to hurt the feelings of other religious groups or, as you said, of atheists. My question is, what is the boundary between BCE and CE? Isn't that year zero? Why do we consider that year zero in the first place? Now, grant you, actually, year zero was not the one in which Jesus Christ was born. Uh, we are off by three to four years, depending upon scholars you are actually consulting on this. Yeah. But, <laughs> I mean, the very system oh. of BCE and CE is Christian. Yeah. So what are you doing? <laughs> and there's something... I guess that's a little bit off topic, but there is something very strange about trying to ignore religion. Like yeah. How do you how do you explain history without religion? I mean, if you look at somebody like Martin Luther, yeah. how do you explain European history without Martin Luther, and how do you explain Martin Luther without Christianity? Um, it's it, there's something very um, very strange about trying to remove. Strange and very artificial about trying to remove religion from the equation because it's well, so. The, I, I found I found the end of this discussion when I actually bring up this. I don't know about Canada, but it's a very hot topic in the United States: slavery, mm-hmm. uh, reparations, and whatnot. And uh, I actually, you know, uh, live in the South where the memory of such things is quite vivid still. Um, so, you know, I. I Every now and then I get in a discussion with people about civil war, commemoration, statues that are torn down, and so on and so forth. And, you know, it all ends when I ask, you know, can you, can you please tell me what was the ideological basis of the abolitionist movement 
both in Britain earlier on and later in the United States. And, you know, short of actually coming with all sorts of absurd answers, you know, freedom, democracy, and so on, no, it was religion. <laughs> It was on a religious basis that Lincoln himself said, this is abomination. Yeah. And, and people at that moment have a, what I would call a cognitive dissonance or cognitive uh, a short circuit in their own brains. They, they just cannot wrap their minds, their minds around it. And that's because they have been taught that religion is superstition, is what uneducated people do. Oh, I have to tell you, I mean, most, most, most of my um, uh, acquaintances in Europe who come to visit me are just shocked that a professor has published the books that you mentioned earlier and goes to church every Sunday. They're shocked. Mm -hmm. they, 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 they cannot understand that. Why would you do that? I mean, I, I thought religious people are stupid. Well, I mean, are you calling me stupid? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's, um, that, that brings us back to education. That brings us back to the fact that, uh, you know, I, I, I fight, I, I, I spend more time fighting stereotypes in the classroom than actually teaching stuff in a sense of new content, absolutely new content. People know a few things about this and that, but they, they, the notion that they have of what happened is so distorted that, I mean, it's a hard time. Now, just as in the case of Greenland with the Vikings and climate change, so I bring up the issue. Look, I mean, if you if you um, if if you don't think that religion is significant, you have to explain to me why could a man like Martin Luther, a simple man, cause so much so much havoc in the heart of Europe just by writing, just by words, without an army. And that will tell you something. I mean, it's not necessarily that, uh, because, you know, the assumption is that all the other people, including those in the Middle Ages, were more stupid than we are not right now. We are so much more enlightened. We know so much more that we don't need religion anymore. To which I reply usually, okay, then why is the 21st century, at least the beginning of it, defined by religious issues? Every single day there is something in the news about that. Why? Are you telling me that half of the world is, or two-thirds of the world is still in the Middle Ages, but you here are the most enlightened, progressive, and so on and so forth? <laughs> and of course, that goes back to the idea that uh, most of those statements are made from an elitist position. In fact, another contradiction in terms is that Marxism claimed to be for the people. As an old Romanian joke has it. I can also give you the name, the names of the people for which Marxism stands for. In other words, it's, it's, it's not, it creates a new elite of people who know supposedly better, therefore I'm, I'm entitled to more. Can you say that again? I got a little bit. The, the, it creates um, an elite mm -hmm. of people who supposedly know more, therefore are entitled to have more. I mean, the one thing that, you, you, you know, the George Orwell thing that, uh, you know, I believe is Animal Farm. Um, um, all the people are equal, but some people are more equal than others. Mm. Um, in other words, I, I live in a, in, a, in a communist country. I, there were years in the 80s when they had those, uh, you know, I was literally starving. There was no food in the fridge, in the stores, anywhere else. But I had colleagues at the university whose parents were in the nomenclatura. 
who had everything, not just food, but of different kinds, from France, from England, from Germany, whatever. What equality are we talking about here? Mm. So, and it, 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 it's the same here. I mean, uh, you, mentioned, you mentioned Bernie Sanders, and I don't want to make any political points, but to me, this is, this is the, the epitome of hypocrisy. Somebody who talks about equality, owning uh, a few houses, right? Um, Hollywood uh, celebrities that actually preach about uh, climate change, that actually move from one place to the other in the United States in their private jets, yet I have to actually give up on my own car. So, I mean, we, we, can, we can talk more about this, but I think in a belated answer to your question, why is Marxism popular? Because it also is a very effective way to distract attention from something that is actually much more significant and much more hurtful for many people. If I can, tell, if I can tell that you are not sharing, then perhaps mm -hmm. I don't have to share my own at all. Mm -hmm. Because most people actually look at you rather than me. And I think there's a lot of that in modern politics, a lot. Yeah, so we've, I think we've mentioned that religion is really important and you can't just take that out, and that's probably one problem that, um, that we're seeing here. Um, and so Marxism, sometimes people will say, here's, here's a different question for us, for you. Um, some people will say, okay, well, we understand that you know, Soviet Russia, the USSR, that didn't work. Mm -hmm. But when we look at, you know, some, uh, the New De Democratic Socialist Party in Canada, now they're just the New Democratic Party, they dropped the Socialists out, or the uh, Parti Québécois, or the Parti Québécois. Right. The, anyway, there's, there's yep. Socialist Parties in Quebec, but these are not parties that have an agenda to create a dictatorship. This is democratic socialism. So some people will say, well, you can't apply the stuff that that happened back there with Stalin to these parties here, or you mentioned Bernie Sanders as well. He doesn't have an agenda, as far as we know, to take over the country and, and set up a dictatorship. So how would you respond to that? This, this is perhaps doomsday, doomsday speak, rather than understanding that, look, we're just taking some good concepts from Marxism and trying to apply them. Well, um, first of all, you cannot, you cannot uh, cherry-pick from Marxism mm. and still pretend that what you have is Marxism. That's not Marxism. You, you either take it as a whole or you don't. In other words, you cannot call capitalism, for example, something that actually combines um, state control over the goods with uh, the abolition of any form of resistance to other uh, projects, economically or socially speaking. That's not capitalism. That's fascism. In other words, we have words for a reason to distinguish between realities that are different from each other. Calling something that is not Marxism Marxism is simply creating confusion, whether deliberately, as I mentioned earlier on, or not. Mm -hmm. Now, let's assume for a moment that we are talking about people of good faith, just ignorant, that they don't know that that, in fact, is not Marxism. As I mentioned earlier on, one very important tenet of Marxist theory is that any ideas actually are validated by practice. To the extent that one uses Marxism 
as a system of beliefs, as a system of uh, not beliefs. I, mean, I, I, I take that back. As a, as a theoretical sense, a sense of ideas about not just what happened in history, but what to build something in the future. Then uh, the, the only test that we have for that, right? Marxist, Marxist in general claim that uh, dialectical, uh, historical materialism, another word for Marxism, is a science, is not a theory. So mm-hmm. if, you, if you think of, of what we can have to test that science, that scientific theory, then the only thing we have is history. And as I mentioned earlier on, every time it was tried, not in the same way, it was tried in one way in Soviet Russia, it was tried, still tried in a different way in Cuba. Romania different from China, and so on and so forth, right? Every single case, it failed. Mm-hmm. And it failed miserably precisely where, as I said, it was supposed to actually provide a solution for the people, right? Now, back to local politics, Canada. Um, let, be, be, before I go there, let me, let me, say, let me say something about uh, this idea that somehow social democracy, as represented by Parti Quebec, Quebecois in your country, or more often the argument in the United States is that, look, look, we don't want Marxism like the Soviet Union. What Marxism or socialism like in uh, Scandinavian countries, mm-hmm. right? And I, I'm going to ask the same question here. Um, correct me if I'm wrong. Is there any of the of the Scandinavian countries, with the exception of Finland, of course, um, in which um, socialism is viewed as a model, especially Denmark, Sweden? Are, any one of those countries not a monarchy? How, how does that system, political system, square with the idea that we are talking about Marxism here? What equality are we talking about here, if that's the model? Uh, the confusion goes even further. What, and, and it speaks volumes about what I said earlier at the beginning of the, our interview, that people just need a label, just need a name for what otherwise could be called a very loose notion of social justice. Policies that will take care of the women, equality between women and men, um, minorities uh, of all kinds, uh, 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 protection of children, and whatnot, right? So all those things would actually have to be addressed by policies. And, you know, to have a, a, a very quick way to refer to this, most people use Marxism just as a shortcut, but mm-hmm. at the close analysis to it, there's nothing there. I mean, there is a reason, correct me if I'm wrong, for which the communists in Quebec left Quebec Solidaire two years ago. They did not recognize in Quebec Solidaire the program that they think is truly Marxist. And to tell you frankly, uh, Quebec Solidaire is actually, for example, you know, a great advocate of feminism. Well, guess what? Neither Marx, nor Engels, nor Lenin were fond of feminism at all. And there is a reason for it, because they thought that gender is less important than class. It is the classes that they wanted to reform. And since we got to this point, let's analyze a little bit here. All right, so, you know, I'm, I'm trying to think like the opponent would have said, look, we don't want to do it like in the Soviet Union or in any other communist country in which um, things were done better. We've done it a different way, right? Mm-hmm. And my argument is, how can you do it in a different way? In the meantime, society changed. Marxism works um, as, a, as, as a theoretical system um, 
for the prediction of the future, uh, at the moment in time and in a place in history where you have a substantial working class, what Marx would call a proletariat. What proletariat exists in Quebec, for example? I looked up the... Um, I, I know there are no leaders of the party in Quebec Solidaire, but I looked up uh, the uh, profiles of the, how do you call them, the, not the leaders, but the speakers, I guess, the, of, the, of, the, of Quebec Solidaire. Not a single one of them is actually blue-collar. Not a single one of them. Not a single one of them is working class. You want to know why Trump has so much popularity here? Because he addressed the needs of the working class. Because, actually, he did something, for example, for the miners in West Virginia. Now, talking about how, you, you mentioned earlier on, how, in fact, we live in an era in which bits and pieces from different philosophical systems are recombined in a manner that is both confusing and extremely dangerous sometimes, right? So, to claim that you're Marxist when, number one, you don't represent any working class, Number two, theoretically speaking, you are for a system of, uh, of beliefs, feminism, right, privileging a, a specific gender that Marx, Lenin, Engels would have thrown out is a lie. In a previous interview uh, with um, Dr. Andrew Holt, you mentioned that the greatest lie told by Marxism is that we are all equal. What are some of the other major lies that you think Marxism tells us? And by lie, what do you mean? Right, that's, a good, that's a very good, uh, uh, three very good questions. First of all, let me explain a bit about uh, all of us being equal, being a lie. Um, the idea that society can be leveled is predicated upon the fact that if our natural differences, and by difference I don't mean that some are better than others. I simply think in religious terms, as uh, St. Paul would have said, you know, one is, has the a gift of prophecy, the other one has the gift of teaching, and so on and so forth. So everyone, every one of us has something in excess of something else, which Christians, I at least, would call a gift. And those gifts are not the same. Therefore, we're not equal. Um, that doesn't mean that uh, I'm not thinking of a system, for example, in the United States, in which everybody, irrespective of the gift, should not be equal in the face of the law if you want to put it that way. But uh, to create a um, philosophical system in order to predict the future on the basis of the idea that we're all equal is actually a lie. So is the idea, also, I would say, fundamental to Marxist theory, that humanity is um, to be understood best in contradiction with nature. Let me explain. Mar at, the, at the very root of Marxist theory is the idea of value. Um, and value is created by labor. Um, the price of a commodity, uh, and I'm referring here to Das Kapital, uh, is actually something that is less or not only dependent upon the costs of producing that commodity, but also on uh, the labor that is invested into producing it. And uh, Marx's uh, actually uh, fundamental point is that labor is what humanity does, fighting nature, modifying nature. Um, the problem with that argument that uh, Kuwakowski, a Polish historian, actually, uh, Polish philosopher, um, pointed quite clearly is that actually humanity is part of nature. 
Mm. Um, the, the distinction, the sharp distinction between nature and humanity, which is very 19th century, of course, I don't, uh, in my dad's remarks, was not unique. Um, it's a great lie. It's a great lie that is responsible, for example, for the high degrees of pollution in the, in the world nowadays. They are based on the idea that humanity right. can destroy nature, right? So, um, it, it, I mean, there, there is, there is a, a series of things in Marxist uh, philosophy that are inspired by a uh, level of scientific observation, right? Which is long gone. Hmm. Which so is to say that... An outdated system. Correct. Correct. And that goes back to what I was saying. That's why the left is incapable of creating something new. They, they, um, the discoveries of science in the last 100 years or so right, have moved the frontiers of knowledge so far that it will be very difficult right now for someone to do something like Marx did, to actually try to bring all those um, issues together and on the basis of that create a system of... Um, prediction for the for the future. In fact, we in the 21st century renounce even that. Nobody believes that there is a single answer to all the problems. Every single field from medical to history, from mathematics to physics will tell you that under certain circum circumstances things would go this way or the other way. There is no single solution for anything. Um, and as a consequence of that, the, the, whole, the whole idea that somehow there's a single force, uh, you know, mode of production, as Marx would put it, to explain history is an enormous lie. Uh, can you explain, I don't know, <laughs> the rise and demise of the Arab Caliphate in terms of a mode of, uh, of, of production? I think that would be a very hard uh, thing to sell nowadays. Uh, because indeed there is no specific mode of production. Certainly ca the caliphate cannot be explained in terms of either feudalism or of capitalism. Another lie coming out of that is the transition from one mode of production to the other has to take place as a revolution, which is another word that is you know, passed around so often nowadays. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, Marx had in mind, well actually Engels, had in mind uh, things like the uh, English Revolution, uh, the American Revolution, and of course the French one. Um, but you know, but their revolution five... worked out. Those ones worked out pretty well. But not Correct. I mean, I don't. Did. If well is good, <laughs> it's a good word here. But <laughs> the point is that they were trying to make uh, uh, the transition itself as necessary, necessarily violent. Mm -hmm. And that was an argument that was picked up by Lenin for obvious reasons. Uh, to justify the violence in the Bolshevik Revolution. Um, but how about the transition from, say, um, from, say, uh, a slave mode of production to uh, feudalism? In other words, another mode of production to a subsequent one. There's nothing there. Mm -hmm. Nor can, for example, peasantry in the Middle Ages be perceived as an agent of change similar to the proletariat in capitalism. The system itself simplifies history to such degree um, that it makes it simplistic, therefore of no use. And in fact, in the last, uh, what, 50 years or so, neo-Marxists uh, actually spend more time trying to pigeonhole uh, societies into those pre-existing boxes, rather than investigate uh, the very fundamental aspects of Marxist theory. Um, there, there has been a, a great deal of discussion on uh, the unpublished works of Marx, especially Grundrisse, um, in which Marx tried to actually give some sense of um, realities outside Europe, 
specifically India, because he was living in London at that time. Uh, and you can you can get that he knew that his model would not work everywhere. He knew that. Mm. Yet everywhere you go in Latin America nowadays, even in India, you know, people would actually uh, uh, trying to refer to uh, old things that we don't want anymore. We should get rid of. They would say, well, we have to get rid of feudalism. <laughs> Marxism has been borrowed in all those countries as a as a as a, as a useful device, which is not. Uh, with all the consequences of that. Sorry, go ahead. And this gets back to what you said before that we lack education. We need more complexity and nuance in Correct. Our understanding you, history. You got you got to put Marx in a context. Without mm-hmm. ditching uh, his theories, you actually have to understand Marx in the philosophical context of the 19th century. Um, you cannot un- you cannot have Marx without Hegel. You cannot have Hegel without Kant. Yeah. So the, with the three names, you have started actually teaching a course in philosophy, fundamentals, mm-hmm. um, and that is not done at all because it's too complex. You see, I don't. I, most people think that it's because we there is a deliberate attempt to dumb down the education for the purpose of controlling. I'm I'm not much into conspiracy theories nowadays. <laughs> I simply think that it's too complicated. It's, it's way too complicated. It would actually, you know, uh, people need quick solutions, a few words, and that's it. Uh, the, the attention span of most students is very short between one phone message and another and, and Facebook. So we don't have time for complexity. Mm-hmm. Yet the word is more and more complex. I'm not sure anything good will come out of the fact that we are not meeting that complexity with, a, with, with a familiarity with complexity. I'm not sure something good will come out of the of the of the eventual collision between um, a world that is so complex and a pretty pretty simplistic mode of thinking. Mm-hmm. By saying, for example, that you're going to bring um, socialism to the United States, right? Um, uh, I'm referring to specific politicians uh, nowadays in my country, right? Uh, you, you are you are actually. Uh, offering only one very narrowly defined set of values, maybe because you know people are m- more um, responsive to that. But the end result, you don't need to go too far. Look at Venezuela. Mm-hmm. It started in the same way. Uh, c- complex problems in a very complicated country, which was very rich. Right? Um, politicians going for one or two uh, slogans, one or two words that will actually simplify reality to a pair of um, contrasts, and there you have it. Because indeed, I mean, I cannot stop um, looking at the news that coming from Venezuela, especially the blackouts. It's exactly how Ceausescu went down. In other words, as a historian, I'm saying, this cannot be accidental, that the demise of two regimes so far from each other, both in time and in space, is similar. And that's actually a pretty Marxist statement to do, but if you don't mind. What is a lie? What, is, what uh, do you mean by a lie? What's, what is true? Well, I guess, in, in, indeed, I, I think a lie is to be defined uh, apophatically, uh, but only in relation to what is truth. Can you um, remind our listeners what that you mean by apophatic? Yeah, um, apophatic theology is the one... Uh, that uh, goes about by um, describing God and the divine in negative terms. So we don't, we, no, nobody saw him, right? 
So we can only tell what he is not, not what he is. Um, similarly, in the case of a lie, uh, you cannot you cannot basically say what a lie is unless you have the other side of the of the uh, the opposite side of the coin here. What is truth? And you're asking a question. That question to me, God is truth. Um, and a lie is therefore something that actually negates um, God. When I said, for example, that uh, Marxism um, uh, claims that everybody is equal, right? And I said that's a lie. Uh, and I, if you remember, I gave you uh, an explanation of what I meant by that. And uh, I basically argued, no, God did not create all of us the same. God did not create robots. God created individuals with personalities, with characters, with gifts, and each, he gave to each one of us a different gift. So the truth uh, in relation to which that statement is a lie is in the epistles of St. Paul. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, the quote, but evidently it's in, it's in Christianity as a, as, a, as a system of beliefs more than just a particular passage in the epistles. Yeah, and again, we see the impossibility of avoiding a religious uh, right. framework. It's, right. Yeah. Uh, my my students are not sure. I, it's very interesting. I, I I live in a. I mean, I I taught for twenty years here at the University of Florida, and uh, I saw a lot, um, especially in terms of the changes in the academe, my colleagues, and students. And uh, I taught courses on religion. I taught a course on the history of Eastern Christianity as well. Um, with no problems, with a lot of interest in that. Uh, so it's, it's a very bizarre phenomenon. Uh, at the same time as some of my colleagues, for example, have been very aggressively anti-Christian, um, I had some absolutely insulting um, moments uh, in those 20 years of being here. Students are, on the contrary, extremely interested in the uh, religious uh, aspect of history. Some of them are religious, you can tell, but some of them are not. In other words, I get this interest from people who confess, come back to my office hours and say, look, doctor, I cannot believe in anything. I, said, I didn't ask you to. I'm not a priest. I'm not a preacher. I'm a professor of history. All I'm asking you is not to discard religion from history because you're going to shoot yourself in the foot. You're not going to be able to understand what a lot of people did back in the past. Um, and they are they are taken aback by that. They, they they don't know how to respond to it. You know, it's not the um, it's not the average line. Oh my God, you're an atheist, and you know, a debate ensues. I don't want to debate because I I don't I I, I don't want to judge. <laughs> That's not my job. Yeah. But we need to think clearly, and we need to identify lies, as you say, or or mysteries right. when we identify when we right. see them, and speak up. You speak up. Yeah. Uh, as a Christian, I think uh, uh, identifying the lie and keeping quiet, uh, that's a gross mistake. Very big mistake. So this dovetails into, um, I didn't tell you this in our previous conversation, but this really, where I got really interested in this is when one of our politicians said, um, the problem with ces lois fait par les vieilles en blanc, c'est qu'ils sont uh-huh. faits par les vieilles en blanc. So what she said is, the problem with these old laws written by old white guys is that they're written by old white guys. Yeah, yeah, I got it. Yeah. And um, just sharing for listeners that don't speak French. So um, right. my objection to that is not that I'm a middle-aged white guy and I feel personally offended. My my response to that is this is an ad hominem attack. 
you don't, you know what, actually, what I meant to say is, how would you respond to that? I, I know how I responded to that. I said this is wrong on every level, but how would you respond to a statement like well, that? Well, I can respond it in two ways, uh, wearing two hats, not, not simultaneously, but consecutively. Let me, let me put the hat of a historian first. And I'm not sure to what specific laws she was referring, uh, so I will confess my ignorance on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but l- laws were created in the past by white men. I suppose she was referring to the situation in Canada, because that country was inhabited by white men. Mm-hmm. And white men, rather than women, before uh, women were allowed to vote, would get into politics. Now, you can say that nowadays that's not tolerable, but that is a what I would call the presentist fallacy, an attempt to understand history by the standards of the present, mm-hmm. which is stupid, to say the least, um, because it predicates, it's predicated upon the idea that everybody in the past was an idiot, and only we in the present know better. Um, that religion, for example, um, another attribute of old white men, uh, was something that was imposed upon people, and so many people died. Look at the Crusades, look at the Inquisition, whatnot. And, you know, my argument would be, really? Have you looked at the 20th century and how many people died because of secular regimes, be that Nazi or communist? Uh, but more to the point, um, history is never an exercise in going back and forth. This people really died. Even, even if you take their statues down, even if you take their names off the buildings, the, 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 the statement that you make by such things, that somehow their memory could be erased, is a lie. Just mm-hmm. like uh, erasing names of uh, emperors that were not uh, uh, okay with the senatorial class in Rome from inscriptions, Damnatium Memoria, as it was called, right, was a lie. Eventually we learn about them. Somehow the, 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 the truth will come to the surface, no matter what. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean that those people will be, um, uh, their actions will be validated by history. No. Uh, a historian is not, as I mentioned earlier on, to judge. A historian is to actually set the facts in order. Uh, and now it's time for me to actually take the head of a historian and put the head of a Christian. Um, to say that the laws were made by old white men implies a number of things, but I think the most egregious one is the one that refers to race. Um, I don't know what uh, political colors the politician you mentioned earlier on is, uh, but I would argue that anyone that actually uses white supremacy as an explanatory device for whatever it is in politics nowadays commits an enormous crime against one's own discourse, namely that, um, I mean, usually such statements are made from the left, and the left actually claims that identity is not a matter of definition from the outside. For example, it it, it is not for science to define what is a woman and what is a man. Gender is something that is assumed, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, then what makes you think that I am white? What makes you think that the identity that those old men, supposedly, right, had was white? Isn't that a label imposed from the outside? Isn't that contradicting the very basis of the political discourse from which that statement came? And in, in true 
um, uh, relation to the Christian identity uh, represented by the hat that I just put on, I would say that's a lie. Mm-hmm. Because fundamentally, we need to be talking about ideas, and it doesn't Correct. matter who. Correct. And you know, what those age ideas have to be ethnicities, right? right? Have to be placed in a, a historical context. Mm-hmm. All right. You want to say that those ideas, those laws are now um, outdated, fine, let's open a discussion about that. Mm-hmm. But why do you have to say that they were written or proposed by old white men? Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty sure if we actually look a little bit at the laws, you'll see that actually a lot of those men were not that old. Yeah. <laughs> to start with, if, okay? If we want and to get to it, then, yeah. Right. I doubt that any one of them will have thought of himself as white. Yes. I had this Definitely. argument with... Um, with one of my colleagues at the university here, um, very interesting argument. Uh, you see, uh, the color of my skin is a little tan. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I pass easily here as a Hispanic or Iranian or something like that. People are shocked when they know that I'm not from any one of those parts of the world. Um, and in Europe, for example, uh, I have a hard time uh, being accepted, for example, in Germany because of that. I had racial slurs uh, 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 thrown at me in England. Uh, so. Uh, I have a colleague saying, well, it's easy for you to say that because you're a privileged white man. I said, wait a second, wait a second, right, stop right there. Why do you think I'm white? And her answer is, look at your skin. I said, what? That's a racist statement. Mm -hmm. And indeed, I I would question that politician and say, what makes you think they're white? And probably she would have to refer to some image of those politicians who proposed the law. At which point I would say, you are racist. But more to the point, you see, as, as I said, I mean, it's, it's more to that. It's the, it's the contradiction in terms. If indeed I'm allowed to say whether I'm a man or a woman or transgender or whatever, why, why am I not allowed to say whatever I want in terms of the race? Can, if, if we assume for just a second that that's a category to define people in, right? I mean, I think that the entire the entire discourse about race in the in the late 20, in the second half of the 20th century proved pretty clearly that there is no biological or cultural basis for it. Yet somehow we got stuck into this, this this discourse in the early 21st century, still talking about white and black and and all that nonsense. Mm-hmm. I mean, <laughs> what is in fact somebody with a tan skin like me? And in fact, I think that the, the answer to many image of God. Correct. And the answer to many of those questions, many of those questions, is to look at the at the borderlines. If you want to understand ethnicity, for example, another category that has been overused in the 90s, right? Then you have to go and ask people who are in mixed couples, right? I have a cousin who married a Hungarian. If you remember, I told you earlier on that in Transylvania, Hungarians, Romanians, and Germans live by side by side. And nationalism is rampant, particularly against Hungari- I mean, um, uh, between Hungarians and, and Romanians. Uh, just as I was uh, shunned by my family for marrying an Orthodox, she was shunned for marrying, for marrying a Hungarian, somebody outside the ethnic, ethnic group. You want to understand how ethnicity works? Well, ask those people. You cannot come and say, well, I think you are Serb, I think you are Croat, I think you are this. I mean, it doesn't work that way. Mm-hmm. doesn't work that way. Indeed, mm-hmm. the question for many is, what am I? Am I American or Romanian? Part of my family is of Saxon origin, speaking German uh, from Transylvania. So, I mean, it gets really complicated. And again, 
we go to the same problem there. The politician in question is not interested in the complexity of the world. Mm-hmm. In fact, she is shamelessly using the desire of her constituents to get things simply, black and white, good and bad. How is that different from Hitler? I ask you. Indeed, I'm, I'm referring to specific speeches that he delivered in Nuremberg, mm-hmm. in which reality was simplified. I'm not saying that only Hitler did that, but I'm just saying if you really want stark contrast, well, there you have it. Tell me what the difference is. Because, indeed, calling someone white is, I mean, to, to, to give you an example of an episode that, uh, you know, probably is the best example of where I position myself in this. I was in graduate school at uh, WMU, Western Michigan Un- University, <clears throat> and um, I was writing a dissertation on the early Slavs, which became the first book that you mentioned at the beginning of the interview. And I, I wanted to take a course in sociology to understand a little bit how ethnicity and race, but specifically ethnicity, was uh, dealt with, was how, how scholars in this field actually thought about, uh, conceptually about this um, in modern times. The class was about 18 people, uh, 14 of which or 16 of which uh, were African-Americans. Um, and the professor was African-American um, um, too. And the discussion at one moment in time got to a, a point about reparations. It was a hot topic since the 80s. It is. Um, repar- reparations for slavery, that is. And I was fascinated by the discussion. Obviously, I was not an American citizen at that time. Uh, it was the first time I heard about such things. Uh, never thought that somehow you can fix history by paying amounts of money to a particular group in society. So I was very interested in actually seeing how the arguments went back and forth. <clears throat> and since it was a free discussion, I raised my hand and uh, asked, look, assuming for a moment that um, I will decide to stay in this country and live here, would I have to pay that? Although not only I have no ancestors in this country, but uh, my family was a family of serfs, uh, of uh, uh, almost slaves, right, uh, uh, 150 years, well, 200 years ago. Um, how, how does that square with what you want? Should I still pay? And the answer came from my colleagues. Yes. Why? Because you're a whitey. Hmm. And at that point, first of all, I would say that their way of thinking about history is no different from the, politi- from the politician that you just quoted. Hmm. It's a retaliatory interpretation of history. That's what it is. And when you, when you introduce judgment into history, well, the end result, we all know what it is. Um, but more importantly is, is you know, uh, the, uh, the in, 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 in impossibility to actually figure out how you can actually um, transform a discourse about race by using race. Mm-hmm. That is to say, the, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm reminded what Martin Luther King Jr. said, right? I hope, I have a dream that there will be a day when our kids, we're not going to look at the color of their skin, or mm-hmm. the color of our, you know, what they do, as you correctly pointed out earlier on, as humans in the image of God. Yes. So I think what I've heard you say is that we have oversimplistic thinking, especially with just black and white, right and wrong. You're part of this right. class, you're part of that class. 
We can't yep. remove religion from the equation. And we can't just simply retry Marxism, ignoring the fact that it doesn't work well. Yes. What do you think is the way forward? What is what is your antidote? What is your answer? Ooh, that's, that's a very complicated question. I'm not. I'm, I don't think I'm qualified to answer it. I'm not a politician. Um, and well, historian... you your opinion. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, I can tell you what I like to live in. I can tell you that a system uh, that provides uh, freedom for me to speak, for example, to you on the phone without fearing that someone will actually record our conversation, not you, but a third party, uh, without our consent, um, it's a good good system. Um, Is is a system in which I live in America a perfect one? No, of course not, because it's a human society. And it's it's a society uh, that... um, in many respects, even here, it claims to be to know better, to do better than what God uh, uh, can and will do. Um, now, uh, I, I am a medievalist. I am I am a historian of a period in time when people had a much deeper understanding of God and their relation with Him than we do now. So um, I would say that probably it's because of that that I privilege a society in which God is at the center of all attention. Now, like you, I don't want to live in a, under a theocracy. Um, but, for example, every now and then when I teach uh, Byzantine history, people ask, so how did it work? Was the, was, was the emperor the, the head or was the patriarch the head? And I said, actually, both. And, you know, the very interesting thing is that people have a hard time understanding how could, in fact, church and state cooperate and they're supposed mm-hmm. to be separate. And I think... Um, um, <clears throat> Part of the problem, before even telling you what I would like to have, is I am too old to actually uh, be uh, able to think of a society that will come into being during my lifetime, the remaining part of my of my lifetime, um, uh, that will actually be in any shape or form far away from the enormous damage done, done by the enlightenment to what we are now have. Now, don't get me wrong. Uh, I don't think I would love to live in a society such as the one existing just before enlightenment. But uh, the baby was thrown with the bathwater. Hmm. Um, the idea that somehow uh, God is, first of all, to be removed from his creation and then basically ignored is, in my opinion, the beginning of all the ills, especially those of the 20th century. So, uh, in direct answer to your question, probably the society that would be better, say, would, would do something better than what we have right now, is the one that will actually fix that mistake. How? I don't think I know the answer to that. I like, for example, the fact that I can live in the United States where, you know, as I mentioned earlier on, you can, you can believe in whatever you want. Nobody stops me from it. I had colleagues who were hostile to my beliefs, but that's about it. I put icons in my office, and that's it. I mean, no, 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 no. everybody learned how to respect that, mm-hmm. after all. Mm-hmm. And the law is on my side. That's probably yeah. the most important thing. <clears throat> so it's a, it's a society created to, to, to um, allow that freedom, that individual freedom there. Some people, as you correctly pointed out earlier on, abuse that. Some people take that individual freedom way too far. Um, is there a way to correct that? Can you have freedom by removing freedoms? I don't know. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I sincerely don't know. Well, Dr. Craig, I really appreciate that conversation. 
and uh, appreciate uh, drawing on your experience and uh, also your, your vast learning on these subjects. And uh, if people would like to hear more from Dr. Kruda, uh, they can go to users.clas.ufl.edu slash fkruta slash florin slash index.html for your website and your CV and a list of your other published works. And um, I'd like to thank all the listeners. This is Josiah Meyer for the No Longer Be Children podcast, and I wish you all a good day. Bye. Thank you so much.